So we are in Luke chapter 18. So we're going to talk about the rich young ruler today. As bad as the sign looks, I'm not going to talk about the rich young American. Although I do feel like, in a way, we kind of fit into this pretty closely. And I think there's some warnings in here for us that uh, we, we certainly need to be aware of and be cognizant of. Now, as I've said at the start of nearly nearly every uh, message, at least for two months now, Jesus and the boys have been on their way to Jerusalem for the last time. It's going to be his last trip, and he knows it. And it's weighing heavily on his heart that the disciples don't understand what's coming. He's told them numerous times, at least four up until now, maybe three, but I think at least four up until now. And, and he's going to go over it again, but I'm not going to go over it today. We'll do that the next time. This is his last trip, and I know he's worried about what's going to happen uh, to his boys. Now, today's events follow after my sermon two weeks ago, which ended with Jesus telling the disciples to forbid not the children, forbid not, not to forbid, forbid not the children to come to him. Now, in the crowd was probably this rich young ruler. And having heard that about the children being welcomed into Jesus' arms as it was and, and, and allowing for these type of interruptions in the middle of one of his messages, I believe that's what encouraged this young man to step out and ask this question that he asked. You know, Now, this guy was fearful and hesitated, but nonetheless, he was sincere. We can see from this passage he was moral. He was a young man trying his best to please God. It was remarkable that he would live a life as clean as he claims to have lived, if he's as clean as he says he is. Yet in his heart, even still, he knew as good as he was, as well as he'd behaved, he knew something was missing. And you know, really, the, the title of this message could be, Even Good Men Need to Be Saved. Because the truth is, the best of us is still lost. Sin has affected every single soul in the human family. So we see this verse here. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? No one has ever asked me that question. I don't think. Never called me good master, of course, but I mean, very, very few. Yeah, no, I have had a couple of people say to me, How, how can I be saved? How can I be saved? And say, say that happened to you. Have you, have you ever had that happen to you? Raise your hand if it's actually happened to you. Someone's asked you how they can be saved. Two. That's all. Two. Well, I guess it doesn't happen that common then, does it? You know, Possibly three. Yeah, possibly three. Yeah. Well, certainly they wouldn't come up and call you a good master. And it's not a term that's used very often. It's not a term that's even used in the Bible very often. And the word for good here is talking about absolute goodness. And really, that's, that's why Jesus questions him, I think, is because of the word of Agathon in the Greek. It's, it's, it's absolute goodness. Why are you calling me good? Now, this guy had a lot of things he didn't understand, but not certainly not the least of the things that he did not understand was who Jesus was. He didn't get it. He also didn't understand his position before God. He just felt uneasy in his heart. His question was, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a very good question. It's one that we should all be asking. Linda, your team has arrived. And if you would, on maybe push a button. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then if at all possible, uh, maybe I'll send Kenny, if you're up for it, I'll send you down to unbox the pizzas. 
and put them in the oven when we get done. Uh, I'll, I'll be glad to go over it with you just before uh, just before I send you down. Uh, what's that? Uh, not for me, but maybe someone would want some pepper or something on them. No. I, oregano. Yeah. Is it real oregano or is it the stuff that just looks like oregano? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that would make for an interesting business meeting, I think. It really would. Now, A.T. Robertson said this young man probably thought that by one singular act he could obtain eternal life, that there was something he could do. Now, the guy's wealthy, so, you know, you speculate maybe he's planning on making a big offering. If I, if I gave, you know, $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000, could I obtain eternal life? You know, but Jesus challenges him on it. You know, this guy's decent, obviously moral, raised in the church. Went to Sunday school his whole life. Probably graduated from the Jewish school right there in Jerusalem. He's responsible. He's faithful. He's a good man by human definitions. He has everything you'd ever want. Good, at least in the sense that he viewed himself as good. Not good in the sense of the word that he used, which was an odd choice, you know. Now, you know, I think about that. If, if he had come up to me and he said, Bob, what, sh what should I do? to obtain eternal life. And I, I know what I'd say. I say it every Sunday. Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know. And he might have prayed that prayer. And I fear that having led him in that prayer, he would have walked away lost. Because he still had some problems that hadn't been dealt with. Two of which. First of all, he was covetous. And secondly, his covetous, his love of money, replaced, surplanted was what I was going for, his love of God. So we're going to get there, but he's violated the tenth and the first commandment. Didn't even know he was. And Jesus challenges him with that, and he says unto him, Why callest thou me good? Agathon, moral absolute goodness, for none is good save one, and that's God. No Jewish rabbi would have called another Jewish rabbi good. They would have never referred to one another in that sense. Now, there are those that say at issue here is the deity of Christ, and when I read that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. There's none good but God, and I'm sure that when I've met, well, gone over verses like this before, I've said you know really what Jesus is saying. Are you calling me God? Uh, and that may be partly right, but I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say the commentators don't agree with me. You know. the, the commentators say what Jesus is questioning this young man is this concept of good. But this guy not only doesn't know who Jesus is, he doesn't know what goodness is. Good in, in the absolute sense that God would define good. I mean, compared to Hitler, I'm pretty good, you know. Compared to some guys I used to hang out with in high school, I think I'm pretty good. But compared to the absolute perfection of God, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard of goodness that God expects. If we're going to walk into heaven on our own power, we have to be as good as God. We have to be Agathon. No one, no one fits that measure. Now, 
he's this young man is using good like we use the word love. I love pizza. I love sailing. I love boating. I love hanging out with my dog. You know, he's not using good in the sense that Jesus is using good, and there is none good but there is. What did he say there? None is good save save one, and that is God. This man is not using good in that sense. You call me good. What is your definition of good? And Jesus skips this question, which I find interesting. I, I guess, I guess, I'm sure Jesus knew this man was going to walk away. He knew that this guy was not going to get miraculously, gloriously saved right there in front of everyone. Now, did he leave that hanging because he thought that this guy was a hopeless case? He doesn't think. Did he leave this hanging because he knows that this guy is a hopeless case? Or did he leave it hanging as a worm to work in his mind as he walks off? And a year later, two years later, five years later, maybe he'll change his mind and come back and give up everything that he has and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. It's like that girl left a little earworm in my ear in New Orleans in 1967. I'm not even sure I'm telling you the right decade now. 1967 seems impossible. I still remember, oh, she said, oh, you really need God. Man, that thing's been a little earworm in my head for 50 years. It's pretty amazing. And I, I almost think that's what Jesus was doing. He's setting it up so the Holy Spirit can work on him and bring him around. I don't know that. I'm, I'm making this up. You know, when that guy walked away, Jesus was sorrowful. But Jesus skips the question. Why are you calling me good? And he goes on to it. You know the commandments, which is fascinating to me. He starts with the seventh. He does the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth. And, you know, as I, of course, I've had two weeks to work on this sermon now, which is good. And I'm wondering, why does he do it in that order? Why did, did he pick it in that order particularly? I mean, he, he didn't do anything by accident. His mind's clear as a bell, as clear as a human, as clear as a divine mind can be. He knows what he's doing. Why did he pick that order? I don't know. I have an answer to that. But, but, but he, he just picked specific ones. And I'm going to move ahead of my order here. He only listed five. Four. He only listed four of the five. No, no, he listed all five of those. Honor your father and mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. I remember Ralph Michael, my, my first real pastor, uh, where we were actually committed to a church, and, and he was committed to disciple us. And, and he, he was a great soul winner. Uh, I, I say was. I don't even know if he passed but I'm pretty sure he must have by now. I was never notified of his passing, but uh, I'm sure he and his wife are both with Jesus now. But he used to always say to me, he, he, he could go up on a front porch and sit down with someone and lead them to the Lord. He could do that all day long. It was just amazing. Uh, and he'd always say, you got to get them lost before you get them saved. They have to know they're lost. You have to. And that's where the law comes in. The law comes in. We... we and, you know, I never want to do that. I want to say, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you're secretly holding on to something in the background, I don't know if you can be saved until you're willing to let it go. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know we have to see ourselves as hopelessly and completely lost before God, that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves before we're in any condition to be saved. While I might have this guy simply recite the sinner's prayer, and he might just pray it. 
he might walk away is still enslaved to his covetousness. And being enslaved to covetousness means he's still in sin. All the while he's still lost. Now the thing is, this man thinks he's good. No Christians think they're good. We recognize our sinfulness. A lot of people say, oh, you Christians, you think you're so special. Well, we don't. We actually see ourselves as lost and hopeless and helpless without God. We see ourselves as sinners saved by grace. We see ourselves failing every day. We see ourselves rotten, that our bodies are, are trapped in a sinful condition that we can't get away from. We don't see ourselves as good. At the best, this good man is a covetous idolater. At the best you could ever say about him is he's a covetous idolater. He needed to see God's awesome holiness and his poverty of spirit. The guy said, all these things I've kept from my youth up. And probably by his own definition of keeping it, obviously he didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount, but by his definition of keeping it, he probably has done that. He's probably kept all five of those and done a pretty good job of it. As Mark says, when he looked on him, he loved him. Jesus had great compassion on this young man. Matthew tells us all three, all three of the Gospels have this story. Uh, Matthew says, uh, this guy, after hearing that, said, all these I've kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Matthew 19 and verse 20. Hey, I've done all that. I've done all that. So what's missing? I still don't feel right. I believe this guy was a sincere follower of the law, and I think he'd gone as, done about as well as any human being could ever do with the law. But still he had missed it, because we all miss it. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Something more was required. He could feel it in his soul, but he didn't know what it was. Now, we know that if we attempt to save ourselves by means of the law, we will fail. We understand that. We know we will never find peace or salvation by keeping the Ten Commandments. Anyone who's saved understands that. The law was not given to save us. It was given us to show us our sinfulness. See, for by the law, Romans 3.20, and I should have put this up here. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Uh, in Galatians, he said, for the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It teaches us about our sin, and then it brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. His attempts to keep the law was keeping him feeling unsecure. And it should. For there's no hope in keeping the law. Just like his definition of good was flawed, so his idea of the keeping the law was also flawed. And yet Mark 10.21 says, Jesus beholding him loved him. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are three different commentators that work together on a book that I call Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It sounds like I'm talking about one person. It's actually three. They write, and I don't know which one of them is doing this. They write, his sincerity and frankness, his nearness to the kingdom of God, in themselves the most winning qualities, won our Lord's regard, even knowing he will turn his back on him. Even knowing that this man was going to turn away, God loved him. And Brown writes, I'm just picking one of the three. It should be a lesson to those of us who can see nothing lovable or worth saving in the unsaved. That Jesus loved this man in spite of the fact that he knew he would turn away and walk away. Now, as you go through these five commandments and you listen to him and he says, Jesus recites them, 
the man says, I've kept them all. There's this little niche back in your mind thinking, well, what about the others? Weren't, weren't there some other commandments involved? And there were. Uh, they talk about it in terms of tables. I, I, I like to think of it as two tablets, but I, I have no one that will tell me if the first four were written on the first tablet and the remaining six were written on the second tablet. So the Jews refer to them as tables, and they refer to it as a table, if you've never heard this before, uh, because they see the Ten Commandments as a feast. And on the first table is our the laws requiring our the laws plural requiring our relationship to God. And they sum it up with what I put there in yellow, although I don't know if it shows up. Oh, it shows up wealth, yeah. Yeah. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. See. So when they recited the Shema, the daily proclamation, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first table of the law. And it covers the first four commandments. No other gods before me, not making thee any graven image, not taking the name of the Lord's God, in, uh, not taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain, and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the first four in our relationship to God. Although people argue about whether four should be in the first table or the second table, I'm not going to get into that. Not today, anyway. The second table of the law is what Jesus used, which is, is summed up in the phrase, Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. In that, Jesus said, is the whole law. When he's speaking to that lawyer, you know, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, the greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus answered the guy. Now, the second table of the law is honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And thou shalt not covet. <clears throat> now, you know, I've already let the cat out the bag, that he missed number one and number ten. He actually missed ten, but in missing ten, you miss one. And in missing one, you've missed them all. I don't know if you see it that way or not, but that's the truth. All right. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he said, you only lack one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Just one thing is missing. Sell all you have. You know, Jesus doesn't say that to everyone. So if you're feeling a little uncomfortable here, and I didn't put this at the beginning of the business meeting. <laughs> And I'm not looking for a raise. I'm actually looking for a reduction. So, not looking for a raise. We don't need more money. But the fact is, the first commandment says, no other gods before me. If we're not ready to take our wallet and lay it on the altar, that wallet is a God. Now, Jesus knew this guy's heart. Preachers can't do this when people come up to them because we don't know their heart. But Jesus knew this guy's heart. He knew what this guy needed. He didn't ask everybody to do this, but he asked a lot of people to do it. And there's a lot of Christians that have said, God has spoken this word to my heart too, that I cannot love my house or my job or my stuff, or in my case, my, my geography. I really suffered more leaving my geography than I did leaving the job that I had or, or the house that I had. Although I suffered leaving my house, I suffered more leaving my geography. West Tennessee wasn't my idea of the eastern shore of Maryland in any sense of the word. 
Riches were this guy's idol. Covetousness was his sin. Gold was his God. That's the point. He tripped over the Tenth Commandment. And in tripping over the Tenth Commandment, he just slaughtered the first. He didn't get it until he got it. And when he got it, he completely missed it. And he understood it. He understood that to fail in one point is to be guilty of all. James tells us this in James 2.10. You know, one violation makes you a sinner. And when he had heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Mark says he was sad or sullen and went away grieved. Matthew says he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Very rich. I think it was A.T. I, I didn't know who, who I got this thought from, but I think it was Robinson, A.T. Robinson. He said today he'd be a multimillionaire. Well, unfortunately, the way inflation has gone, we are all millionaires. If we just work a whole life, we're lucky enough to live long enough and work a decent job our whole lifetime, we'll make a million dollars. Whereas I remember in 1950, when they had a show called The Millionaire, we knew that you'd work your entire life and you would be lucky. In the 1950s, work your entire life, you'd be lucky to make $100,000 in your lifetime. So a million dollars was ten times more than an average working man could ever expect to earn in his lifetime. And now we're going to earn that. The unfortunate thing is back then a truck only cost a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks to buy a new work truck. And now it costs sixty thousand dollars. So we're not any better off. So now I guess A.T. Robertson, he's been dead a long time, he'd probably say this man was a billionaire. Well, we don't know how wealthy he was. We don't even know what kind of a ruler he was. We don't even know how young he was. In fact, Matthew and Mark just call him a young man. They don't even define him as a ruler. One small crack makes a broken mirror. One small sin makes me a sinner. Because there's none good in us. Romans 3.10 No, there's none good. No, not one. So he has proven to lack that one all-comprehensive requirement of the law. Absolute Subjection of our hearts to God. That's what the first commandment requires. Absolute subjection of my heart to God. That's where we're at when we try to follow the Ten Commandments. This one disobedience that this young man had made all of his other obediences valueless. It doesn't matter how much good we've done in our lives once we've violated the first commandment. See? Now, does not this first commandment also apply to us? And if so, how? And that's something we need to settle with, within our own hearts. How does this apply to me? Do I love God with all my heart and all my soul? If Jesus came in and said, leave everything you have and follow me, would I follow him? I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> I really do. I hope it's yes for all of us. You know, it's almost like it's a Lot's wife question, right? Jesus appears in the sky for us. The door opens in heaven, Revelation chapter 4 says. We hear a trumpet. That gets our attention. We look up. We see Jesus standing in this opening in heaven. And he says, come up here. And Bob says, oh, did I check the bow lines on my boat? Huh? Well, well what about? Lord, let me shut off my pellet stove. <laughs> Let me check the electric stove. You know, it's almost a lot of swipings. 
I love that in, in the chosen where he says to Peter, Peter says, what do you want me to do? And he says, come and follow me. And Peter stood up and said, where are we going? I love that. He didn't worry about the fish. He didn't worry about the boat. He didn't worry about anything. I'll follow you anywhere. That's what the first commandment requires. Well, this guy didn't do that. So the question is, do we own our money or does our money own us? You know, there are a lot of very wealthy people in the Bible that love God. And they're very famous. They had all the money they could ever need. And they love God with their whole hearts. Money is not the issue. The issue is whether we own it or it owns us. And at that time, at least in this passage, in this young man's life, his wealth owned him. See? Now, where am I? Verse 24, I think I need to move you up one. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. It's not impossible, mind you. Uh, Zacchaeus, remember, was very wealthy. He was up in a tree, and Jesus called him, and he jumped out of the tree and said, I'll give half of my money away right now. You know, I mean, wealth doesn't own everyone. For it's easier for camel, Jesus said, to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You know, I've heard a number of people speak on this subject that the, the needle's eye is a reference to a, a low door in the temple, but this particular Greek word is actually talking about a sewing needle, and it's an old ancient proverb that you, you just say, you know, it's it's just saying it's impossible. It, it's impossible. I, I guess it's not impossible. If you could cook that camel down into a complete liquid, you could probably get him through the needle's eye. I don't know. But I don't even know how you'd liquefy the guy. So, I mean, it's, it's just saying it's pretty hard for rich people to let go of their money. I mean, because they got it by working hard, and it's pretty hard to get them to let go of it. That's all Jesus is saying. And when the disciples heard that, they thought, whoa, because, you know, when they think about rich people, they think richness is an absolute proof that God is blessing you. You know, that's the proof that you are in God's perfect. And so that's why this rich young ruler turning away just, just blew their minds that, that somehow Jesus had rejected this guy or that this guy rejected Jesus. And they, they couldn't put that together because they couldn't understand how a guy so blessed by God would be so far out of sync. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. And they said, you know, possible with men are possible and they said who who then who then can be saved i probably should have stopped there my god peter goes how, how can anyone be saved if a rich person can't be saved but we know don't we we're americans we know money gets in the way our work gets in the way everything gets in the way our fishing gets in the way our sailing gets in our hunting gets in everything gets in the way you know if we're not careful between our relationship with god everything that gets the devil will use anything in the world to separate us from God. It's almost impossible for someone in our position to be saved. But Jesus said, with God, all things, all things are possible. It may be impossible with men, but all things are possible with God. That's the point. Now, you know, even though we know all this stuff, and we do, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. The funny thing is, we still tell our kids... Study hard in school, get a good paying job, make a good living, buy a house, have a family, save for the future. We tell them the same things that tripped us up, don't we? 
And we know that their very success can become, can become, not will, but can become a distraction between them and their relationship with the Lord. I, I don't know what the best advice a parent could give a child is, but I think the first thing would be, let's pray about it. And ask the Lord what he wants you to do. Because you do not want to get in between your child and the Lord. And you certainly don't want them making a lot of money uh, before they know what God wants them to do. You know. Because we know the more they work, the more they earn. And the more they earn, the harder it is to let go of it. And the harder it is to find time to serve God. Or even seek God. Fortunately, I love that phrase, with God the impossible becomes possible. God can break the grip of gold in our lives. And if you have that problem, if you, if you find your things controlling you, you just go to the Lord and you tell Him that. You confess it as a sin and the Holy Spirit can break that power in our life. It's like an addiction. He can break that power. And the way to break the power is to allow God to teach us to be thankful and to be content with what we have. To take joy in what God has already given us and not seek more which is the opposite of covetousness. And then Peter, you got to love the guy. Can't wait to meet him. And Peter says, well, <laughs> we've left everything to follow you, Lord. And I, I think, let me see if I can find my note here. Yeah, uh, I know it's here. So, oh yeah, Matthew 19, 27. Peter said, what shall we have therefore? How will it fare with us? <laughs> little self-seeking there on Peter's part. And Jesus could have said, now, about that 10th commandment on covetousness, Peter, that would have shut him up. Uh, there's a commentator, Bengal, you'll see notes, if you, if you read many commentaries, this guy, uh, Johann Bengal, he lived eight, uh, 1687 to 1752. He makes a statement that you'll hear a lot of preachers repeat. And I'm going to read Bengal in his own words. The workman's little is as much as is all. I'm reading it wrong. The workman's little is as much his all as the prince's much. So when you give away what little you have, in God's eyes, it's every bit as valuable as if the prince had given away everything. Interesting. Back in the, what is that, the 16th century, the 17th century, the guy saw that. Just as hard for me to give up my Ford pickup as it would be for somebody to give up their Maserati or their airplane or their 40-foot yacht. You know, it's just as hard for us to let go as it is for him. Peter said, well, we left everything. What are we going to get out of it? And Jesus said, and he said unto them, verily I say unto you, one verily, right? Yeah. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parent, plural, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time. And someone translated manifold as a hundred times. I don't know if that's accurate or not. Who shall not receive many times, I think it's safer to say more, in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Matthew 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 19.29 says a hundredfold. Mark adds, Mark chapter 10 and verse 30, as he tells the story, he says, will not receive manifold more in this present time Picking up now with Mark, Mark adds, now in this present time, houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions. So what Jesus is saying is if you leave your home 
God will provide you a home. If you leave your family, God will provide you a family. If you leave your mother, God will provide you a mother and a father and money and jobs and everything that you left behind. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's true. You walk away from that stuff and you think, well, I'm free of it. You know, it's all gone. And I look around now and it's all back. In fact, I got more now than I had when I left. In fact, when I left Hillsboro to quote unquote follow God, to quote unquote trust God, that, that, that's a whole other story about how I was really trusting my own intellect, but that was a learning process. When I left everything behind, I, I managed to get almost everything I owned in the 122 foot U Haul. So, I mean, I couldn't even get another fishing pole in that U Haul when I left it all behind, you know, so it wasn't exactly uh, stellar leaving. But nonetheless, I couldn't touch everything I owned fitting into a U-Haul today. I would need three tractor-trailer trucks or more. I'm not even sure what it would take. In fact, I plan to just die and let the kids deal with it. Yeah. Not even going to do it. But there's a promise here for every one of us that let's go and trust God that God will provide. And he does. I've never met anybody that said God didn't provide for me. You know? I think of my friend, how's my time doing? Oh, we're doing good. I'm pulling up his name now, Clint and Kathy Aiken. Some of you were around long enough to remember him coming through here before he went to Africa with his wife and three small daughters. I believe his wife has died. I think I've said that before. He went to Africa and ended up uh, Kenya in East Africa. Spent years there and developed a Bible school and all kinds of things. He went from there to Madagascar and started another Bible school as a missionary He's retired now, Clint. His daughters are all, I think his wife died, but his daughters are all still alive. His daughters are all involved in one ministry or another, which is interesting. God has really blessed their family. And he sent me an e email or, or a Facebook message. I think it was, he messaged me. Once we connected, you know, we're talking 40 years ago. Once we connected and he said, you know, I, I, uh, I, I make my living now by... He's retired as a missionary, and he, he, he still pastors a church. I'm not sure if he pastors a physical church or an Internet church, because I only see him on the Internet. But it has a name, and it has people, so I, I'm really not sure what he's doing there. But he, he contacted me. He said, if you ever want to visit Florida, I have a number of, of, of cabins that I rent out. And I thought, well, God, you know, he, he made no plans for his future. He, he, he was just going to trust God. And I remember Larry Laraway, some of you remember Larry, Larry said to him, are you going to take those beautiful little girls to Africa? And he said, yeah, why not? They're as safe in God's hands in Africa as they are in the United States. And Larry goes, well, I guess you're right. Well, he was right. God protected them through the whole experience and blessed them to where he now owns multiple properties and he can actually rent one to me. I don't think I can afford to rent one from me. But nonetheless, I mean, you get the point. You know, God blessed him, you know. Nonetheless, hanging back in our mind is always these verses If any man would come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. If we're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be a cost involved. And that cost is we have to put him first, just like the first commandment, right? Uh, just like the first commandment, we have to put him first. Everything else has to be second or third or fourth. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We have to be willing to die. You know, Clint was willing to die. Clint was willing to put his family at stake. Our missionaries are in the same shape today. 
when they get on that airplane, when they go to that foreign country, when they when they try to serve and talk about Christ in a Muslim country, they're putting their lives on the line and they know it. But they also know what Clint said 40 years ago. He said, we're as safe in God's will as we are anywhere in the world. How could you be safer? And how are we going to outlive God's will? Can't do it. See, that's the point. So likewise, Jesus said, Whosoever be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Well, now let's talk about a raise. No, that's a joke. Let's pray. Father, we are challenged by this passage of Scripture. We are encouraged by the promises. We're frightened by the demand. And yet we say, Lord, we know you love us. Forgive us of our sin even our covetousness, and help us, Father, to let go, that we might fully trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.